Well, good morning, beloved. How are we? Good, good. I want to start off with a question this morning. How many of y'all like to go camping? But let me give some context. Before you raise your hand, let me give some context. I'm talking about pitch your tent, roll out your sleeping bag, and know that you're not going to get a good night's sleep because the ground is so uneven. That kind of camping. How many of you like to go camping? Okay, a handful of you, right? Well, when I was quite a bit younger, my family, we would go camping, and those camping trips usually consisted of about a 45-mile radius from our home, so they weren't like across the country camping. And one camping trip in particular, I was around six or seven years old, my dad, he decided that he and my brother and myself, well, we would ride our bikes several miles to see the whole campsite. We would check out the different biking trails. We were on this one trail in particular, it kind of opened up. It was narrow at first, and then it kind of opened up, and as it turned out, that trail was actually meant for more than just bikes. It was a horse trail. It was a horse trail, and that trail was fresh, if you catch my drift, no pun intended. But it didn't stop us from riding along that trail. We just kept riding and and riding, and when the trail got muddier and muddier, or at least we thought it was predominantly mud, we just kept going and going and going and going until we were absolutely lost, absolutely lost. An afternoon bike ride turned into several hours of mud, sweat, and some complaining along the way. I was, you know, young after all. But eventually, we found our way to a service road, and by God's kind providence, a truck was driving by. So we tossed our bikes in the back of the truck, we hopped in the back of the truck, and that kind gentleman took us back to the campsite. And when we got there, I started to notice that people were keeping their distance from us. You see, I thought it was because we're just really, really dirty. Just, just really dirty. I mean, all the mud that we had been biking through was not just mud, though. I, I thought it was mud. I thought they thought we were dirty, but it turns out it was a little bit more than that because we were really dirty. That trail was a horse trail after all. We were covered all over with this unique blend of mud. And if it had its own brand, it would be awful. That's what it smelled like. But you see, we had no idea how bad we smelled because we were immersed in it. We had picked it up from all of our time biking that afternoon. Now, praise the Lord for my mama, because it didn't take her too much longer to send us all to the shower, right? To go wash off. But you see, I don't think... Um, it worked too quickly. It took probably one or two days for full detox to actually occur. You see, the point is this, though. You pick up the smell of what you're immersed in, for good or bad. You pick up the smell of what you're immersed in, for good or bad. And this morning, we're going to be addressing the officers of the church, elders and deacons, those who serve the church in official capacities. And I'm not the first person to say it, but it's true nonetheless. Elders and deacons are to smell like the flock they lead and serve. They are to engage in the work of ministry that the Lord has for them within the local congregation in such a way that as they do, they will pick up the scent of those they minister to. And the congregation will begin to smell a little like her elders and her deacons. And that's why, beloved, that's why It's so incredibly important for us to get these offices right. To get the character of the men who serve in this official capacity right. To get their work they engage in for the good of the church right. 
And Lord willing, we'll do that this morning by looking at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. So go ahead and be turning there in your Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. Now, 1 Timothy, along with 2 Timothy and Titus, they've come to be known as Paul's pastoral epistles. His words to both Timothy and Titus on how life and ministry and structure of the church should look. But again, we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. So let's stand together, shall we, as we honor the Lord in the reading of his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Verses 1 through 13, hear the word of the Lord. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, not sober, or but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thank you. So Paul begins his discussion of the officers of the church here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, those offices established by the word of God with with the phrase, the saying is trustworthy. It's a trustworthy word. It's, It's a faithful word. It's a word to be received by God's people for our good. And that phrase, the saying is trustworthy, it's unique to Paul. He uses it five times throughout the pastoral epistles to describe things like the gospel, the nobility of the work of an overseer. We saw that in our text for this morning. The importance of pursuing godliness and the work of God in our salvation. So weighty realities, brothers and sisters, that we need to hear and receive for our good. So Paul goes on to give us the content of that trustworthy saying by telling us that those who aspire or long for or literally stretch out for the office of overseer desire a good and noble task. Now, it's really important here to point out that the titles overseer, which we see in our text for this morning, but the titles overseer, elder, and pastor are different titles for the same office. They're different titles for the same office. Three different ways of describing the one and the same office of overseer, elder, pastor. One and the same office. And this might sound foreign to our ears because common American verbiage uses the title pastor to describe those in vocational ministry. They're the professionals, right? 
Well, that same American verbiage would use the title elder to describe non-vocational board of trustees like ministry. And well, we typically don't even worry about the title overseer, right? Unless you're part of a denomination that recognizes bishops. We don't typically use that title often at all. But biblically speaking, an an overseer is an elder is a pastor. Let me repeat that. Biblically speaking, an overseer is an elder is a pastor. There are three titles for the one office. Okay, Don't take my word for it. Let's look at the scriptures to see if the scriptures confirm that very thing. So in Acts chapter 20, you can flip there in your Bibles if you'd like. Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. I'm only going to read two verses from the 20th chapter of the book of Acts, but nonetheless, now from Miletus, he that is Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, and then he goes into this long discourse, but scan your eyes now to verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So Paul uses the term elder and overseer interchangeably. We see that also in Titus chapter 1. But did you catch some of the work of the elder overseer there in verse 28 of Acts chapter 20? They're to care for the flock of God. Well, that word care is also translated shepherd. And we see that in 1 Peter chapter 5. In 1 Peter chapter 5 verses 1 and 2, This is how Peter describes the work of elders. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd, care for, the same word being used in Acts chapter 20 and 1 Peter chapter 5. Now, we could also look at Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 11, where Paul tells us that certain offices have been given for the good of the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor-teachers. That that word pastor is just the noun form of the verb to care for or to shepherd. And it's interesting in 1 Timothy chapter 3, right, one of the unique characteristics, capabilities of an elder is to be able to teach pastor-teachers. Now, I think we've seen, biblically speaking, That an elder is an overseer, is a pastor. And it's true, right, that some men will devote themselves to the task of shepherding vocationally. Yes, Paul seems to indicate such things in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. But nonetheless, and I hope we get this before us, nonetheless, an overseer is an elder, is a pastor. Three titles for one office. But the question naturally arises, why three titles, right? What's going on with those three titles will each describe a unique task of this one office. Oversee, overseers and pastors, it describes the what of the office, overseeing and shepherding. That's the task of the office, while elder describes the who of the office, one who's mature in the faith. So when Paul moves on in verses 2 through 7 to describe the character and capability of elders And the character of elders is preeminent in this list. Did you catch that as we read through it? It's preeminently about the character of the man who fills the office of 
elder. Now, it's the kind of character that all Christians should pursue, but must be exemplified by elders. And really, it's kind of beautiful if you were to read through 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. And now, Paul is writing to Timothy in Ephesus, and then you go compare these qualifications here to how Christians are to live in the book of Ephesians, you're going to find a lot of overlap there. Well, back to verse 2 here. This list begins with above reproach. It begins with above reproach, and it would seem that each characteristic that follows kind of fleshes out more fully what it means for the elder to be above reproach. But at its most basic level, it means that an elder is kind of like polytetrafluoroethylene. Now, if you don't know what that means, that's okay. I didn't either until I Googled it this last week. But it's more commonly referred to as Teflon. It's more commonly referred to as Teflon. I mean, an elder's character should be such that if an accusation is made against him, it won't stick. He's like Teflon. doesn't mean that he's sinless, if that were the case. If that were the actual qualification, we'd all be disqualified, every man in this room. But it does mean that an elder is to be a man of holiness, a man of godly, Christ-like character. You throw an accusation at him, it does not stick. He's like Teflon. He's above reproach. That's so important that Paul will actually say it twice in Titus chapter 1, that an elder is to be above reproach. Well, he's, he's to be faithful to his wife. He's, he's a one-woman man, is literally how the Greek text reads. He's a man who honors and loves his wife physically, mentally, spiritually. He is fully devoted to his wife, and he delights to show that devotion over time. And just a quick note here, that doesn't mean that an elder must be married. doesn't mean that he must be married, but if he is married, this is to be his character. More could be said here, but time is limited. So we're going to move on. An elder is to be one who thinks clearly, thinks clearly with sound judgment. He's sober-minded. He's self-controlled, not given over to desires of the flesh and lusts of the eyes and pride of life. Ways in which that self-control is demonstrated. He's not to be violent. He's not to be a drunkard. He's respectable. He's respectable. He evokes admiration from those around him because of his godly character, his love for others. He's hospitable. He demonstrates an openness of his home to care for the needs of others. And it is good and right that we open up our home for brothers and sisters we know. That is good and right. But the primary emphasis Paul is addressing here is that he's willing to open his home to brothers and sisters who he may not know. The word hospitable literally means love of the stranger. One who's passing through. You don't know this brother or sister, but you say, I want to care for you, so I'm going to open up my home. Very practical way that that could play itself out in our modern context. When missionary families are home from furlough, an elder should be the first one to say, let me open up my home even though I don't know you, but I love you because you're in Christ. That's how I can be hospitable taking care of the needs of others by opening up one's home. An elder is to be gentle. It doesn't mean weak. It doesn't mean that he's to be a coward. But it does mean that he is to demonstrate a pastoral sensitivity, a gentleness with the flock. 
It's a constrained strength displayed in love. It's not to be quarrelsome. The New American Standard Bible, if you have it before you this morning, translates that word pugnacious. That's a wonderful word, isn't it? Pugnacious comes from the Latin pugno, meaning I fight. This this elder is to not be one who looks for fights unnecessarily. It's not to be contentious. It's not to pursue controversy for the sake of controversy. That's not holiness. It's not to be a lover of money. An elder's affections are placed elsewhere. An elder is to manage his household well with all dignity or honor, and he's to keep his children submissive. And I want to slow down just a bit here because if we don't slow down, we might be prone to misunderstanding what Paul says. Why does Paul give this particular qualification? Because he hasn't given why he's laid out the qualifications previously, but he does give a reason for this particular qualification. He says that if a man can't manage his household well, then how is he going to be able to care for God's church. There's a connection between managing one's home and caring for God's church. Do you see that in the text? Do you see how those things are connected? It's really interesting. And more so because the only other time that that Greek word for care is used in the New Testament is in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And if you've read through the gospel according to Luke recently, you might remember that chapter 10 is about the parable of the good Samaritan. Let me read some of Luke chapter 10. This is Jesus' response to who is my neighbor. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So this type of managing of an elder's home is to be conducted in a posture of tender service, care, love, strength, and compassion giving of himself for the good of those under his care. Now that sounds an awful lot like Jesus, does it not? That type of managing is the kind that garners the submission of one's children. So let me say this before we move on. If a man is heavy-handed, rough, cold, and mean-spirited towards his family, he is not qualified to be an elder. Biblically speaking, he is not qualified to be an elder because those same characteristics will show up in his leadership, beloved, and that would crush a congregation. Okay, Paul goes on to say that an elder is not to be a recent convert. You might ask how recent. Paul is too recent, but he doesn't give a strict chronology here. He doesn't give us a time frame. But if the title elder implies wisdom and maturity, and I think the characteristics play that out, then enough time must pass between a man's conversion and his installation to confirm that those characteristics are actually true of him. It tells us that a new believer is not to, that new believer may become proud and arrogant and conceited when given the noble work 
of an elder, he might fall into the condemnation of the devil. And finally, an elder must demonstrate a good witness in all that he does before those outside the church. He's to be a man of good reputation, good, godly, Christ-like character. So, those are the character qualifications for elders. But you see, elders must also be capable of teaching, and that for the edification of the church. This is really the only legitimate ability Paul lists here in verses 2 through 7. It's a gracious ability, gifted by the Spirit of God for sure, but an ability nonetheless. And this qualification consists of teaching sound doctrine that accords with the glorious gospel of Christ. There's a faithfulness in proclaiming the truth and a faithfulness to confront false doctrine. Both of those realities are included in this, care, this capability of teaching. That along with prayer are really the two main tasks for shepherds of a local congregation. So, elders are to be godly, Christ-like men who display the characteristics that we just walked through. And as elders teach soundly, conduct themselves in an exemplary, Christ-like way and serve with pastoral sensitivity, the church, all of us, are called to submit to their leadership. That's Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 and 17. Well, Paul, he's going to continue on this discussion. He connects this discussion about elders with what he will say about deacons by using the word likewise there in verse 8. It's like Paul is saying, I'm changing gears just a bit. I mean, not totally, but just a bit. I've been talking about the office of elder. Now I'm going to turn slightly to talk about the office of deacon. It's important that we see that the noun, deacon, it literally means just servant. And the verbal form of deacon just means to serve. If we were to scour the New Testament for uses of this word, we'd see that Jesus is described as a servant. Romans chapter 15, verse 8. Paul and Apollos are described as servants. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. And all followers of Jesus Christ are to have the posture of servants. Matthew chapter 20. Verse 26. So while the office of deacon is unique, yes, we'll look at that here in just a second, deaconing, as it were, if I could use that word that way, should be the posture of God's people as a whole. So what about the office of deacon? What about the office here before us in our text? Well, we only see this particular office a couple times in the New Testament. Let's just be honest, only a couple times in the New Testament. And once it's actually in its early stages. So in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we see the initial form of what would come to be the formal diaconate. That's, that's a fun way of saying the office of deacon. And the only other place in the New Testament where the office of deacon is actually described, apart from our text for this morning, is Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, where Paul mentions the saints at Philippi, along with the L overseers and deacons. And you know what he goes on to say about deacons in Philippians? Nothing. That's all he says. He says to overseers and deacons in verse 1. So 1 Timothy chapter 3 verses 8 through 13 provide us the most detail concerning the who and the what of deacons. Okay, so let's look at it. Just like with elders, we're introduced to the character of deacons first in verses 8 through 10 and 12 and 13. Again, it's a kind of character that is similar to the elders and should be displayed by all Christians, but exemplified by elders and deacons. A deacon is to be dignified or honorable. It's how Paul describes older men in Titus chapter 2, verse 2. 
And just like the call for an elder to be above reproach was fleshed out in verses 2 through 7, above, so too here. What does it mean for a deacon to be dignified? Read on, right? Read on. Look at what follows. A dignified deacon is not double-tongued. He's not deceitful. He's a truth-teller. He controls his words. He's not addicted to much wine. Not only does a deacon display self-control in his speech, a deacon displays self-control in his regards to alcohol. He's not a drunkard. He's not greedy for dishonest gain. He too displays a self-control in his finances. He's not a lover of money. It's not a lover of money which would provoke a greed that manifests itself in kind of underhanded, shady business deals. Again, his affections are elsewhere. A dignified deacon must demonstrate a faithfulness that is proven over time. Time spent with elders and other deacons in service toward the congregation. Time will make evident that he is blameless. And again, that doesn't mean sinless. But Paul does use the same word for deacons here that he uses in Titus chapter 1 to describe how elders are to be above reproach. So, guess what? Deacons and future deacons. Your character is to be kind of like Teflon too. Okay? Accusations simply won't stick because of your godly, Christ-like character. A deacon, like an elder, is to be a one-woman man. He's a man who honors and loves his wife physically, mentally, and spiritually. He is fully devoted to his wife, and he delights to show that devotion over time. A dignified deacon like the elder must manage his household well. And Paul uses the same word for manage in both instances. So you see, I'm inclined to think he has in mind that this type of managing is to be conducted in a posture of tender service to the body to those under his care and to the body of Christ. As a deacon serves well in his official capacity, the congregation recognizes such exemplary service to the body of Christ, and in turn, the body of Christ grows in their affection and admiration for him. See, it's a horizontal kind of gain, as it were. But there's a vertical gain, too. A deacon's exemplary service actually grows his confidence in the faith. And both of those realities are wonderful precisely because of the nature of the posture of service by deacons. Now, the capability of deacons is holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. That's, that's compared to the ability to teach, which is given to elders. That's uniquely given to elders, not to deacons. Nonetheless, Deacons must hold fast to the hope that is ours in the gospel. So anyone who would argue that diaconal work, deacon work, is only hands work, haven't understood fully the qualifications put forward by Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 3. They are to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now we can't move on without considering verse 11. And notice how I bypassed it for a minute. Now let's come back to it. Why does Paul mention wives of deacons in verse 11? Well, for starters, some would argue that Paul's not even addressing wives of deacons, but women who serve as deacons. 
The ESV kind of has a footnote that could potentially be rendered that way. You could scan your eyes down to the margins below, your, uh, below the text if you have the ESV in front of you. It's true that the Greek word the ESV translates as wives can also be translated as women. However, it's a contextually determined word. What that means is that context will have to determine how that word is best translated. And the same word is used again in verse 12, the very next verse, where it clearly means wife. So it wouldn't seem advisable to translate it differently here in verse 11 unless we have significant warrant to do so, which I don't think we do. On top of that, verse 11 is sandwiched between the qualifications for men who serve as deacons. So it would seem odd, would it not, if Paul were to randomly insert qualifications for women deacons in verse 11 and then immediately return to the topic of male deacons that he started back in verse 8. Furthermore, understanding verse 11 to read deacons' wives, it actually advances the flow of the text nicely because he then transitions to describing the faithfulness of a deacon toward his wife in verse 12. So for all of those reasons, I think it's best translated the way that the ESV translates it, wives of deacons. Still though, that hasn't even answered the question that's before us. Still, why does Paul introduce wives of deacons here? And that, by the way, of the word likewise. Well, I'd contend that Paul understands that mercy ministries would likely require, at times, the assistance of a deacon's wife considering the reality of physical mercy ministries to the body of Christ, thus requiring their godly character. That's the connection indicated by likewise. The wife of a deacon must also, or likewise, be dignified like her husband. And that dignity plays itself out in honest speech, sober-mindedness, and faithfulness, characteristics that would be needed in order to engage in those same mercy ministries alongside and under the leadership of her husband with integrity. Okay, more could be said here, but, but we've got to land the plane. We've got to land the plane. So, as the landing gear is coming out, let's focus our eyes on the head of the church, Jesus Christ. In light of our focus on the officers of the church, brothers and sisters, it is of utmost importance that we never lose sight of the reality that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. No group of men have the right to that honor. No group of men have the right to that honor. No matter how great they think they are, Because guess what? There is always one who is greater than they. As Jesus rules in power and with grace through his word, we all submit to him. We sit in glad submission to King Jesus. He is to be preeminent in the church. Jesus is preeminent in the church, not not a group of men, not any singular individual outside of Jesus. He is the preeminent one. It's a position reserved for the one in whom the fullness of deity dwelled bodily. God the Son incarnate, showcasing the glory of God, redeeming a people and reconciling them to a holy God, bringing peace where hostility reigned, and that through his cross work, 
Jesus is the head of the church because the gospel is central in the midst of God's people. He is the head of the body. It is his body. It is his church. Deacons and elders, we simply serve the king of kings for the good of his body. And in the wisdom of God, he designed the church to be led by godly, Christ-like, qualified elders and to be served by godly, Christ-like, qualified deacons. That is wisdom from God through the Son by the Spirit as it's revealed in the Word of God. So maybe you've asked, why does LifePoint organize their structure the way that it does? We organize this local congregation of saints that way because... Jesus has told us to in his word and we submit to him. We don't think we've got a better idea than Jesus. Now, fellow elders, fellow deacons of our local congregation, future elders, future deacons, I want you to listen up here. It's directed primarily to you and myself. We must be the first in line to bend the knee in submission to our king. We are called to do that gladly. We must be the first in line to bend our knee in submission to King Jesus and do that gladly. We are mere under-shepherds and under-servants of the chief shepherd and suffering servant, Jesus Christ. You see, as we lead and as we serve, we point away from ourselves and toward our king. Life point needs more of Jesus, not more of us. We need more of Jesus. Not the exaltation of men, but the exaltation of the God-man, Jesus Christ. So we point away from ourselves and to King Jesus. And that for the good of those we are called to minister to. We're to exemplify all of the characteristics we've looked at this morning because Jesus is our exemplar. He displays those characteristics perfectly. We follow after Jesus. And by the grace of God, we say to those under our care, follow me as I follow Jesus. We are constantly pointing away from ourselves and to the glory of Jesus. We're to love, and serve, and care for, and lay our lives down for this particular congregation. If you're an elder or you're a deacon, look around right now. These are the people God has entrusted to you to care for, to love, and to serve. Delight in that duty. Delight in it. Sounds impossible, right? Because it is. Who's sufficient for that kind of work? In and of ourselves, we'd have to answer none of us. None of us are sufficient for that task in and of ourselves. But thanks be to God who equips and commissions us for such a task so that the bride of Christ, all of us, might be served in the power of the Spirit and for the glory of God so that we might grow up into Jesus, loving him more day after day 
after day. Amen? We're going to close this morning with a benediction from Hebrews chapter 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.